Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to this interview special edition of the Empire Podcast. Now, if you listen to this week's regular episode, you'll know that I'm trying something new with the pod in an attempt to keep the running time somewhere south of 10 hours. Too late. Ha ha ha. And one of the things I'm trying is where we have a long interview, and by that I mean 25 minutes plus on the podcast, I won't run the whole thing in the regular episode. Instead, I'm going to bring you selected highlights or the first 15 minutes, and then you'll get the whole thing, bar the odd edit here and there, of course, in its own special, which is what this is. And if you haven't listened to this week's pod, well, now you're all caught up. So here is the full interview with our old podcast chums, Joe and Anthony Russo. Yes, they are the directors of some small movies we talk about very rarely on the Empire podcast. But recently, lockdown has inspired them to become hosts of their own film show, the Russo Brothers Pizza Film School, in which they and some very special guests break down some of the greatest movies ever made. And Ronin. Only kidding, I love Ronin. I interviewed Joe and Anthony via Squadcast just before the broadcast of their final episode, which covered Back to the Future. And in this interview, we talk about the show, their pizza game, how their choices of movie reflect on them, how they dealt with Avengers Endgame becoming the biggest movie of all time, their next couple of movies, including the Ryan Gosling, Chris Evans thriller, The Grey Man, and their general plans post-MCU. And of course, much, much more. The first season of the Russo Brothers Pizza Film School has finished, but all episodes are available on the Brothers' Instagram and YouTube channels and are well worth a watch. Right, right, here is the interview. The first Russo you're going to hear is Joe. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by Joe Russo and Anthony Russo. Uh, I was going to say directors of some small independent films you may have heard of, but uh, now you're hosts of your own show. What's what's going on, guys? The uh, the Russo Brothers Pizza Film School. You know, they were really a function yeah. of um, the lockdown, and uh, I started watching films with my kids as something to for all of us to look forward to on a regular basis, and then we would have family discussions after the movie. Um, you know, my daughter studied film, my son is studying film. Uh, so it just, uh, it became a, 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 a good family exercise. And that was my oldest daughter who said, you know what, I think you, you and Anne should do this, uh, uh, on the internet. Cause I'm sure there's a lot of people right now who would, you know, want to look forward to something or be part of a community or discussion. Uh, and uh, and we thought it was a great idea, and so we just came up with Pizza Film School because we can never really take anything too seriously. So <laughs> we thought, all right, how do we how do we take the pretension out of uh, out of film school? It f- it feels sometimes like the pizza part is the most important part. Of Without the film question, <laughs> I don't. I think she knew that that's how she would motivate me to do it. Is that I would get pizza once a week if I uh, if I did the show. It's it's been fascinating actually tracking your choices of pizza throughout yeah. the uh, throughout the episodes. Uh, and your last episode is uh, well, it's, it's today as we're recording this actually. That's right. um, so not to give too much away, but uh, Anth, what is your what is your pizza of choice today? And uh, what's your pizza game like in general? My pizza game in general. Uh, well, here's the thing: is I can't even remember exactly what my pizza choice was for this episode. I'd have to look back, but. My pizza game in general is I, I generally eat vegan and there has been a huge leap forward in vegan pizza making in the past several years. Um, 
and I, that I've been really excited by. So there's like uh, some very delicious pizza. There's a pizza place right near our office here in downtown Los Angeles called Superfine, which makes an amazing slice of vegan pizza that has a lot of interesting vegetables, but a lot of spice to it. It's mm-hmm. like when you're dealing, sometimes when you're dealing without the cheese, you got to have something else fun in there. And spice is usually the go-to for vegan pizza. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. I mean, vegan pizza, there's no cheese in that. So yeah. what are you going to do? Well, there are some, there's some vegan pizzas made with vegan cheese. There's a, in Atlanta where we did shot a lot of those small independent movies you were referencing. <laughs> uh, there's an amazing pizzeria there called the Matza, and they do a vegan picante, which is a spicy pizza, but, and they use a vegan cheese on that. It's delicious. And yeah. uh, Joe, what about you? What's your pizza game in general? I mean, my pizza game is intense. You know, my daughter got me gluten-free about four months ago. But before that, you know, I I was, uh, uh, you know, I've got my best places around the country. I'm a Prince Street pizza guy out of New York. I love pepperoni and they do really, really thick cut. I mean, they'll take an entire stick of pepperoni and put it on one slice of pizza. So that's like heaven for me. Uh, Interestingly enough, in Atlanta, they have Antica and they have a place called Verisano's. Two of my favorites in the country are both there. We got a place in Cleveland, um, a, uh, a bakery that, uh, that, that we loved growing up called Presti's that actually serves like Roman pizza. They do it room temperature. So it sits out and, uh, and you point at it and you don't heat it up and you eat it room temp. Uh, and they do an incredible pizza as well. So, What about you, Chris? Are you, are you a pizza head? You know, I am. I am. But uh, I'm going to shame myself now because I, I, I do like a Domino's. <laughs> <laughs> so does my daughter. It's, it's like her spot. favorite pizza. It's sacrilegious. I, I lived in LA for a year back in 2008. And uh, <laughs> I knew I was getting too much pizza uh, when one time the Domino's guy came and said, See you next week. And I was like, oh. You're like, no, you won't. <laughs> no, he did. He did. <laughs> I placed orders for the next five weeks immediately. Um, but yeah, I realized then I had a problem. But it's been, it's been, I, you know what, guys? I miss pizza because Domino's over here, they're no longer doing my favorite pizza because they have a special lockdown paired back menu and it, it right. frankly sucks. So you got, yeah. you got to branch out a little bit there. I'm sure there's some incredible pizza joints in London. There's actually one just down the road that does, uh, I'm going to give it a quick plug now. <laughs> it's called <laughs> Bella Napoli. They do a 15 inch pizza for just $7.99. So next time you guys are in London, there you go. There you go. <laughs> and there's well, massive. We, we need one of those for our next podcast. <laughs> you really do. Um, but there's also an important part of the film school, which is, of course, the films that you discuss. Um, and quite often with special guests. And so this week's episode, for example, is dedicated to Back to the Future. You've also got, you know, you've had Taika talking about Flash Gordon. You've had Josh Brolin on there talking about No Country for Old Men. I loved that episode. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, Mark Hamill, you know, doing what Mark Hamill does best, which is, and I say this all I love in the world, not shutting up uh, on The Empire Strikes Back. But I thought it was great because we, we got all of his stories into two hours, right? So like... <laughs> There's a comprehensive source you can go to for every Mark Hamill story, and it's those two hours of pizza film school. That's awesome. And also, I should say we don't we don't have your interview skills, Chris. So it's you know. I don't have my interview skills. <laughs> <laughs> Do you really think you got every Mark Hamill story in two hours? Close. I mean, it was close. We edited down, I think, from like two and a half. So we kept the poor guy on the phone for two and a half hours. But again, you got a bunch of Star Wars geeks sitting there talking to their their 
childhood icon, you know, and I always find that in this business, people always ask friends or relatives, you get nervous around famous people. And I tend to find that it's not the case unless they were famous when you were a child. And then you get really nervous around them because the kid in you comes out. And so I felt like the four of us talking to Mark Hamill were all very nervous. And I will, I will add this as, as, as per your question about did we get all the stories in two hours? Uh, when we stopped recording, we continued to talk with him and we got some more stories that are specifically not to be recorded stories. <laughs> those are great quite, stories. They're quite good, but we can't speak about them. Yeah, those, those are the best stories. Yeah. The, the ones you can pass on uh, at dinner tables you know, yes. in a few years' time going, I, I heard this from a very, very good source <laughs> about the Empire Strikes Back. But it has been fascinating watching... First of all, how the show has progressed over time. It's gone from really kind of lo-fi beginnings where it's just you guys in, in your houses. Um, didn't even really have like an introduction, had like a simple logo. It, it was live. You know, we were yeah, literally it doing live. it live. Yeah, it was just like a no safety net live. We like <laughs> lo-fi. We like tearing down ceremony. We're not big fans of pomp and circumstance. We don't like, you know... We're from Cleveland, and our, our, we found our way into film through a local cinema tech and a love for movies. And Anth and I make movies because we grew up watching them and talking about them and quoting them ad nauseum. You know that was our upbringing. We did not, you know, we did not. It, it was revered in so much as it was uh, a source of conversation for us, and we loved losing ourselves in those stories. But we also don't like the mystique that surrounds it or that the, the mystique that certain people try to apply to it. We don't like pseudo-intellectualism. You know, we, we, you know, we find that it's sort of as exclusive and a, as, a, as abhorrent as a conservative thought. So, you know, we like to, we like to make things available to everyone. Uh, and we mm-hmm. find that life is always best in balance. So we wanted to do something that we felt was super approachable and and did, didn't have a lot of production value to it. Now, as you progress, things happen. Like Kyle, you know, who's an amazing rapper, was in Cherry and, and said, hey, I, I could do a hilarious theme song for you. We're like, okay, great. Then he did the theme song and we heard it and laughed so hard. We said, we have to do some kind of Terry Gilliam-esque, ridiculous <laughs> animation to this. So we called our friends at, at a VFX house, visual creatures, and said, will you come up with something completely ridiculous for this? And then, you know, we started recording and prepping a little more because we felt like, you know, we were getting uh, more concise in our approach and, and it developed into what it is. I don't think we would ever produce it beyond what it is right now, which is, you know, a very casual conversation with people that we love and admire about story structure using clips from movies to sort of, you know, reinforce the conversation that we're having. Although for our next season of this show, we may start wearing makeup. <laughs> Kiss makeup. <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah. And full-blown cosplay for every single film. That'd be, that'd be great. I could just imagine you all wearing sort of that, that Marty McFly windbreaker type thing. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be quite interesting. But the, the choice of films has been really illustrative i guess of your of your tastes i mean you've been very open about how these movies have informed you as as filmmakers so you know you've got the likes of la hen in there you've got ronan i love ronan um i've got a i've got a slight bone to pick with you guys you chose the evil dead and not the greatest movie of all time evil dead Dead (laughs) 2 we did that because i wanted to talk about 
Raimi is the pioneer of do-it-yourself filmmaking. I mean, that movie really was bootstrap filmmaking. Yeah. And, and when you read the stories about how he made it, it was terrifying. I mean, they, they were in the woods with no running water, no electricity, everyone getting sick. You know, that's like, you, you see those stories so rarely now of like, every, you know, everyone contributing in the most extreme way, you know, physically demanding uh, film shoot. Uh, and and it turned into a worldwide phenomenon. I thought that was the inspiring aspect of that. Mm. I do love Evil Dead 2. I, I love it more than Evil Dead 1, but I have an admiration for what Evil Dead 1 is. That was worth talking about, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the fact that they were, you know, they were literally welding a camera to a plank of wood and using that as their steadicam or- and running through a swamp with it. <laughs> like, you know, and, and by the way, if you, you, you know, Raimi is really directly responsible for the Coens. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, um, the, you know, Joel was cutting on that movie. That is the uh, the camera that the Coens then you know continued to make famous and utilize in their films. After Raimi used it for probably the you know the coolest point of view monster in horror movie history, uh, and uh, and so a lot came out of that movie, and that's why it's really a really special film. And uh, how did you how did you all choose the films? Did you get one choice each? Anthony, I mean, how how did you? Is there anything that, that particularly sings to you on this list? We we just we, look at it was very very hard coming up with a list to be honest with you because there are so many movies that we love. So, but there you know there's certain things that we sort of keep returning to over and over, and a lot of it had to do with uh, what kind of guests we could find to help illuminate you know each individual film. So. Um, you know, I have to say, I, I loved all the experiences. Uh, Josh Brolin was really eye-opening for me because even though we've worked with him, it's just, I, and I had this sense of him from working with him, but it, I, I came to understand this even more in that episode of what a fan he is and what a student he is of filmmaking. I mean, he really takes it all in and he uses it all and he understands it all in a way that I, not a lot of actors do. And I find that really remarkable about him, and he has it, and his point of view as a result of that is is really uh, exciting. Can you draw direct lines from many of these films to the films that you've made? I mean, f for example, you you reference Back to the Future uh, <laughs> notoriously <laughs> in Endgame. You call it a bunch of bullshit, uh, whilst having Alan Silvestri score your film, guys. I mean, what's going on there? And then, of course, there's Cap's entrance in Infinity War, which that is pure Once Upon a Time in the West. That's, that's mm -hmm. Chuck Bronson turning up at the beginning. As yeah, well as sure. the, the end of Endgame, when the uh, Thor, uh, Iron Man, and Cap uh, walk towards Thanos, and Thanos gives that you know, uh, um, you know, th uh, thematic speech sitting on a stump, uh, mm. you know, uh, all, a very casual uh, performance. Uh, you know that that scene at the end where uh, of Once Upon a Time West, where Fonda approaches uh, Bronson sitting on a a stump, mm. uh, was uh, you know shown to uh, the crew on several occasions and the actors. So everyone understood what we were the homage we were trying to uh, to pay there. And I think, look, again, we are intertextualists. We are filmmaking fans who got into movies because we loved watching them and talking about them. And you know. Soderbergh was our mentor, and Soderbergh is a very disciplined filmmaker who likes to shift genre. He doesn't like to be defined. 
You know, there is no, I don't know that you could say anything is Soderbergh in the way you could say something is Cohen, Cohen-esque or Tarantino-esque, right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, because he, he, he's so uh, eclectic in his choices. And we always admired that. And part of being disciplined is, is, you know, understanding how you craft story and structure. And Anthony and I spent years under Soderbergh's tutelage figuring out how to write uh, uh, screenplays. And we created our own structure that we could follow to tell stories. Story is really paramount to us. So, um, you know, film school, pizza film school is really us relaying to other people, hey, here's the process we came up with that helps us get through it. Here's some benchmarks and some tent poles that you can aim yourself towards because it can be a daunting process. But, you know, we want everyone to be able to tell stories and we want as many diverse voices as possible telling stories because that's what makes filmmaking so vibrant and will keep it alive and and, uh, and and a dominant art form. It's interesting you say that, Soderbergh, because Soderbergh himself is, you know, when I think of Soderbergh, I think of someone who likes to subvert genre and certainly deconstruct genre. You know, whenever he's whenever he's on genre films, he tends to come at it from a from a an obscure angle, an obtuse angle, even. Um, is that something that you guys, in a way, brought on as well when you were making these these massive behemoths? I mean, that's always been a, an, a critical element of our sensibilities, you know, and again, I think it comes a little bit from from our growing up in Cleveland, like Joe was talking before. It's just there's sort of you have it, you know, it's it was the city went through very tough times, especially while we were growing up. And it's you develop a sort of a slight detachment uh, when you're in that kind of an environment and you develop a certain type of attitude toward bad events that helps distance you from them. And so I think that we've carried, we sort of carried that, um, that grounding into our appreciation of film. And, uh, we like to, we like to have layers going, layers of understanding going on while we're experiencing a film. We know, we know why we love films. We know, uh, on a superficial, we love movies because they're exciting and kinetic and funny and surprising and, you know, all these sort of very base level, um, effects that, that can get thrill us. But we also like movies that are operating on a level where we don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know where the movie's going to go next. Um, and so I think that having that dual level of awareness as we're telling stories has always been very f- important to us. And uh, how are you guys doing in lockdown, generally, <laughs> other than making this? I presume you're in post on, on Cherry still? Yeah, we still are. We're just finishing up Cherry and uh, doing a lot of score work on that film and some... Um, color color timing and and uh and fortunately we're able to proceed with a lot of those things remotely in an effective way surprisingly um otherwise you know we're we're continuing to develop things and we're able to work with our partners chris marcus and steve mcfeely uh on a, on a few projects so our lives are pretty full right now i mean eventually we'll have to confront the uh, prospect of of production and that'll be a different uh different animal but but for now we've been able to function uh, i think both professionally and personally fairly well the production thing is going to be interesting because obviously cherry is really interesting because cherry is a deliberately smaller picture and i wanted to talk to you guys about following up endgame for example uh you know since we last spoke, we did a spoiler special for, for Endgame last year. And since we last spoke, it became, I don't know if you know this, the biggest film of all time. 
And when you look historically at people who have had movies become the biggest film of all time, it almost paralyzes them a little bit. You know, George Lucas didn't direct for 20 years after Star Wars. Uh, Jim Cameron took 12 years to follow up Titanic. It strikes me that you guys approached it in a different way, that you already had Cherry on the go, you already had Agbo on the go, you had loads of other stuff that you were perhaps aware that there might be a, a bit of a paralysis of, of choice in the future. Although you're, you're causing my chest to constrict right now. <laughs> it may oh, yeah. be because there's two of us, but I, I we've never had much concern for societal uh, opinion about what we do. We're quality of life guys who approach everything by what makes us happy. And what do mm. we want to do next? And what story do we want to tell next? And uh, I think you can only be defined or paralyzed if you allow yourself to be defined or paralyzed. And again, that's something that Soderbergh taught us, right? Like, again, you look at his, mm. how eclectic his career has been. He never lets anyone define him or put him in a category. Uh, and we're the same way. We're in a part of, you know, our journey as, as artists was for auto- towards autonomy. And we have reached the, you know, the, the, the apex of that for ourselves. And now we have that, the opportunity to do whatever we want. And, you know, it's, we've, you know, this is the perhaps happiest point in our entire career. So why wouldn't we take advantage of it? So, you know, we, we love the book, Cherry. We love working with Tom Holland. That was an amazing experience for us. And then we'll move on to the next incredible experience, you know, Gosling and Evans on Gray Man and, and, you know, the four or five things we have lined up behind that. So, it's, it's, you know, we're really just look at each other and go, well, what do we want to do next? And, um, uh, you know, we've, we've always wanted to make a Bond movie. Let's go make our Bond film. And then what lies behind that? You know, we've, you know, we, 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 you know, the one, the one thing that we always wish we could have made was, uh, Lord of the Rings, you know? Uh, so, so what, what's our version of that? You know, he, Joe, Joe was referring to, um, Gray Man as our Bond movie, not an yes. actual Bond movie. <laughs> in case the internet suddenly went, what yes, the hell? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but really that's the, uh, it, it's, it's been a, I think a real joy for us since that movie came out because it, you know, Agbo's autonomy and uh, agnostic approach uh, um, was in place uh, to capture the, you know, the, um, the leverage that we gained post that movie. And, and we've been very happy as filmmakers and very excited about everything that we're working on, which is the, the most you can ask for in life. And you know, it, it strikes me as well, the scale of what you guys are doing at Agbo is, is huge. I mean, roughly how many projects do you have on the go right now? Uh, <laughs> like a million, so, 10 million? What so many, it? we couldn't even answer the question. Um, <laughs> we, we are high-functioning ADD. We do yeah. like... To tell a lot of stories, we do like to work a lot, and it's pizza film schools. I, you know, as you said, is in you know represents our eclectic taste, and so we, you know, we like to tell different kinds of stories, and whether we're producing them or directing them, we find them equally as exciting. So we, I, I, we may have four things going to production this year. So it's a, it's yeah. a lot, uh, maybe five. It's it's a lot, but it's 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 also exciting, and we're happy. Well, that's mm. the thing too is we learn. I mean, look, we've had such such a varied road. We've sort of made movies for as little money as you can make movies for. We've done television, all sorts of television, comedy, drama. And then we've made 
movies for as much money as you could possibly make movies for. Mm. So, so we really understand the scope of what the process is. Mm. And we tried to set Agbo up as a resource for us as filmmakers and for other filmmakers within that we, that we want to bring into the fold here as a, as a, as a filmmaking resource for us and everybody. And so that's really what it's designed to do. It's designed to bring storytelling, bring future films through the development process in a way that stays very artist focused as mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, the other sort of uh, agendas that you fi can find in corporate studios. Um, and that's really, so the size of it really speaks to the fact that it just has this ambitious agenda to be a, the most vibrant filmmaking resource that a filmmaker uh, could, could have. I don't know how much you can say about the, the Grey Man at this point in time, but it, it excited, well, excited the, uh, the Empire podcast crew whenever it was announced, uh, that's for sure. And it seems to be, we're talking massive scale. We're talking, you mentioned Bond there as a touchstone. Uh, and presumably, I don't know, after, after four films of Chris Evans being Mr. Nicey Nice, you must be delighted that he might be slightly antagonistic in this one. <laughs> I, I think it's, you know, he's on a similar journey as we are. I think he feels like he, those Marvel movies afforded him an opportunity to take risks with the rest of his career. Uh, and we admire the hell out of Chris because he is going to take a lot of risks and he does. He takes them personally, he takes them politically, uh, and he's taking them as, as, as an actor. Uh, and, uh, and the part he's playing in this is insane. Uh, and, uh, and, and it, you know, we're, we're excited because we get to change up our process with him and guide him through a very different kind of character than he played uh, uh, with us for seven years. Again, Chris is a wonderful actor. And, you know, the more you sort of peel back the layers, the more you're going to find there. I saw him a couple of years ago on Broadway in a play called Lobby Hero, mm. where he played a very devious SOB. And he played it with such verve and relish and, and subversiveness that I just was like, wow, Chris is, you know, he's got a tooth for this. And uh, I think that, 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 you know, we're going to be able to build on that kind of an expression, I think, in this character. Mm, but it's, a, it's, it's still going to be huge, epic action. It's, it is. Absolutely. It's massive. It's globetrotting. It's massive. And, spy. You know, yeah, it's massive in its scale uh, and, uh, and it's world building. You know, that's the thing that excites us the most is, is building worlds for people that they can, spend time in over over because that's what we love to do as kids you know i mean i remember waiting for 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 the you know star wars movies you know i remember waiting for empire to come come out i remember waiting for jedi and you and, and all, all the toys that i had filling in the time in between those movies with my imagination uh were, were some of the um uh, you know, more exciting moments I can remember being a film fan. So we try to supply those same um, experiences to other people. Uh, and Gray Man will, will fit in that model of, of presenting some big world building for uh, a, a universe of characters. And I'd also say we're, you know, we're trying, to, as we did with Winter Soldier, you know, we're trying even more so because this is, this is more of a real world narrative. Um, we're trying to really base it upon a lot of our current anxieties about the world and our collective anxieties about what's wrong with the world and how the world functions. And we're trying, so we're trying to very, very much explore themes and ideas that are um, a part of the zeitgeist right now. Seems to be a battle going on between humanity and sociopathy. And, you know, the, the thematics of this movie are, are humanity versus sociopathy. 
<laughs> there's your tagline <laughs> pretty much sort of as well but are you also trying to position Agbo in a way as you know you, you know how Hollywood's gone you, you know <laughs> in a way you guys have just made four movies in a row based on comic books obviously um, but are you trying to position Agbo in a way as the home in Hollywood for original stories and for things that wouldn't get made at the other big studios I mean that's certainly the way we've been proceeding, you know, with the company. I mean, we, you know, one of our very first projects was a film called Mosul that it was based on a New Yorker article, a story about a SWAT, uh, an Iraqi SWAT team in the city of Mosul that helped rid the city of ISIS. And um, we shot that film entirely in Arabic. Uh, that's not a movie you're going to see move through a normal studio system. Um I think there's a lot of examples of that about projects that we're working on, but we have mm. to do. And again, we look at that. This goes back to what Joe was talking about earlier with Steven Soderbergh. When Soderbergh kind of just quote unquote discovered us, we were at a film festival called slam dance mm. and somebody recommended to him. This was our first movie that we had, had made uh, that he check out our movie that was screening there. And he, and he watched it and, you know, that movie, he called us about a week afterwards and suggested we get together. I started talking to him and eventually led to him producing for us. But there was nobody else that responded to that film. That was not a film that, like, we, Joe and I thought this was like, oh, you know, we go show the movie to people, it, it, we'll get a distributor, we'll figure out what we're doing next, etc. None of that happened except for Steven Soderbergh. He's the only person that really provided a, way, a road forward for us. Um, and. And I think that was because that was sort of, he could see something in that movie that had some value to it. He could, you know, there's some, sometimes an artist can look at another artist's work and sort of recognize something in it that maybe the commercial system of filmmaking can't. And so we do look at, that was really pivotal in our career and our development. Mm. And so we do look at it as our responsibility to try to see things in other filmmakers that the system might not see or recognize and figure out how do we foster that? How do we grow that so that these, so that they can find ways to to make films. So where were you both when you heard that Endgame had become the biggest film of all time? And what did you do to celebrate? Oh, my gosh. That's a good question. <laughs> do you remember, Anthony? You you I mean, here's the thing. I can't remember. And just hearing you ask the question, like, I can't believe I can't remember. Were we at Comic-Con? Were we at Comic-Con? Oh, I think it was, I think it was Comic-Con. I think, I think what happened was... Here, here's the thing is it is a little confusing about when it when it was going to become that movie because there's a little bit of a looseness in terms of how box office is tabulated, right? So mm. sometimes it's yeah. – so Disney was being cautious about how they were interpreting the numbers because they didn't want to – uh, mistakenly over over overestimate you know what what the box office was and then yep. later have to recorrect it so they were being very cautious mm -hmm. about it but I do remember coming up on Comic Con like Joe was mentioning we got a call from Kevin Feige and Lou Desposito at Marvel and they basically said oh yeah it's gotten to the point now where it seems certain <laughs> that it's going to reach that number. And uh, we're going to make the, the we want we we think we should make the announcement at Comic Con. We're like, yeah, that's perfect. So um, that's yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> it was it was it's, I think it partly partially hard for us to remember because that was it was kind of stressful. There was such you know it was such a such an event that it could feel a little overwhelming to us at times. 
I think we were doing press from like April till July. So it was a, yeah. you know, you're on a bit of a, a, a speed train when you're doing media for a, a film and you can't really stop and engage with real life until that's done. And I think we're getting to the end of that train uh, and that, and it coincided with, with the news mm. that it had crossed the line and crossed the number. Also, I have to confess this. I, there was part of me that was kind of suppressing the whole box office um, issue in my, because I was like, I, I remember at one point, everybody just was talking about the box office, talking about the box office. And I'm like, why aren't people just talking about the movie? Who cares about the effing box office? (laughs) So I think I began to block it out from that point. That's a, that's a very good point. I think we should, we, we, well, at Empire, we only did, 10 hours worth of spoiler specials on Endgame. So I think you're right. Uh, I'm, I'm slapping myself on the wrist. We should have done it 15. No, yeah. not you. Not you. You guys, all, you guys always talk about the right things. Over and over and ad infinitum. In but, um, but yeah, I, I, I was thinking about this the, the other day in that you, the two of you guys, you directed from 2014 to 2019, obviously when the, when the movies were released, but you directed Winter Soldier, Civil War, and Infinity War, and Endgame, effectively all back to back. How are you still sane? And how did you manage to, how, how, how did you manage to do that? A lot of, a lot of gray hair. I mean, again, yeah. I, I think it's because there's two of us. It's a, uh, and we also, you know, we were in television for years and we produced TV. So we're producers and directors and, you know, we just learned how to be efficient in communication and efficient in our thought process. You know, again, you know, back to Pizza Film School, our structure, like we have a structure that is very disciplined that allows us to break scripts quickly. Um, Mm. You know, so Kevin can poke his head in a room and go, I need Civil War. And Anthony and I and Marcus McFeely can all go, all right, give us six months, you know. Um, (laughs) You know, it's it's just a process that you understand we know how long it'll take. We've broken several movies with Marcus and McFeely at Agbo, and it, you know, they all take about the same amount of time, and we all follow the same process to do it. But we, we all love storytelling, so we're able to focus together on a on, on collective um, terminology that that allows us to move through that process as a, a, a you know a four a, a four pronged uh, amoeba, you know. <laughs> But I mean, it, 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 and it actually extends even beyond that. It's, it, you know, certainly our, our teamwork is, is critical to it all and central to it all, but it, um, it extends to everybody. Like we were at Marvel, we were working with the dream team, you know, everybody involved in making those movies was, was amazing and was as good as they come. And I think that, and also all had their priorities in the right place. So that I think was also very key to how, how something like that it's done three real quick last questions um yep. extraction came out a couple months ago on netflix um we pointed out that it has a hero called rake who kills people with a rake joe what have you got planned for extraction two uh he's gonna use a rake again uh, <laughs> but a bigger rake a double-headed rake well what's what's going on I mean, again, that's, uh, we just can't take anything too seriously so uh extraction two uh, you know, we're not going to commit whether it's, it's a, whether it's a sequel, uh, uh, or a prequel. Sneaky. Um, yes. Uh, but you know, what's great about it is, um, Sam did an amazing job with that film as a first time filmmaker. And it's rare that, you know, a first time filmmaker can deliver something that accomplished and polished, especially 
on an action level, which is a really difficult genre. Uh, and, and Hemsworth's performance in it is fantastic. So it's very easy to write for that character. Uh, and I know now that we can go for much bigger scale emotionally because we have Hemsworth and physically because we have Sam. So, I, I, you know, we're going to push it and, and, and try for a much bigger sprawling story. I mean, and, and each extraction film, Tyler Rake could meet a guy who's named after a Guardian implement. So That's you right. could maybe <laughs> yes. gradually have the, the Guardian Avengers <laughs> <laughs> and just have all your films in with portals. That's uh, the third act. <laughs> That's it. It's just solves everything. Just yeah. if you're if you're if you're up against a wall in the third act, just have a portal open behind the hero, and then someone will step out. It solves everything. Um, Joe, I know you're you're a Liverpool fan. I wanted to get your your take on the uh, the the seasons just gone by. Yeah, and we've got we're we're holding the cup. We're a winner, man. I think it's an incredible team. They're fun as hell to watch, uh, and uh, you know I, I, I'm interested to see how long they can keep the dynasty going as I'm sure many Liverpool fans are. Anytime you reach unprecedented levels of success, you know, there's always somebody wants ridiculous amounts of money. And, you know, so we'll, we'll see. Mm. And uh, Anthony, uh, is football not your thing? Has it passed you by somehow? Yeah, it passed me by. I'm a, Joe, Joe's definitely into sports more than I am. I'm more of a casual fan. Nevertheless, I'm claiming you as a Liverpool fan. And okay, yeah, <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> and the last thing is, obviously, you've got, you're going back to your day jobs now. Pizza Film School is over. But are you planning to come back for a second slice? You've mentioned you've dropped hints that you might be back. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we'll probably make it seasonal or just depending on schedule. Uh, we do have to go into production on Grey Man in the winter. So maybe we'll do it before that. Or at the, uh, at, the, at the next global pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the, the nice thing about uh, um, the internet is that y- you can reach anyone with it, right? And people around the world can have, have uh, access to it. And, uh, you know, if, if we, can, we can reach one person that didn't have the ability, facility, or, or, sort of fin- or the financial means to to go to film school and inspire them to tell their own stories and the, uh, the, the process is worth it and we will keep doing it. Um, and, and we'll find another thing to talk about, you know, another aspect of filmmaking to talk about mm. in season two so we can keep dimensionalizing it. And, and hopefully by the time we're done, there is a, a comprehensive, you know, uh, approach to uh, filmmaking um, and all the things that we've learned that we can share with people and, and they can use it to tell their own stories. I'd say, you know, hearing Joe talk, it reminds me of something else that was really meaningful to us and pivotal to us as we were sort of just thinking about film, which was uh, when Robert Rodriguez made El Mariachi and he wrote a mm-hmm. book about how he made the film for $7,000. And that was an eye, uh, like a revelation to us because we had never before, having no experience with filmmaking whatsoever, and this is pre-digital, so this might sound like nonsense to a lot of people today, but it, you know, it seemed un, unbelievable that you can make a movie, a, a real movie that you could go see in a movie theater uh, for $7,000. And that all of a sudden made filmmaking feel tangible to us and doable. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, I think it was pivotal in us trying to figure out how to actually do that ourselves. So yeah. We, yeah, I think part of, part of the goal, like Joe was saying with, with the film school, is just to make demystify the process, make it feel accessible uh, to people who want to access it. 
Amazing. Well, it's fantastic, guys. And I wish you all the best with, with that, with the Grey Man and Cherry and everything at Agbo. Um, and, uh, you know, if you, if you are doing Evil Dead 2 next season and you need someone to talk about it, well, I am available. Yeah, okay, you're for in. sure. We'll do that. We'll by, do that. By a weird, that's again, that's on the record. That is, that is incontrovertible now. I, I am already there. I've recorded it. I'm going to send my bit over to you right. guys. <laughs> we always love talking movies with you, Chris. I mean, you're, 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 you're our favorite person to talk to about film. So, Oh, uh, you guys. We'd love we'd love to have you on, and uh, um, you know, uh, you, maybe maybe you can pick your favorite for us. <laughs> it's a dangerous, dangerous game, Joe. Uh, listen, guys, I'll let you go, Joe. And it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Chris. Chris. Take care, man. And that was the Russo brothers. Time will tell if I make season two of the Russo brothers pizza film school. Watch this space. Our other interview special with Josh Lucas is up right now. And do keep peeled for more specials like this over the coming weeks. And do let me know if you like or dislike this little experiment. The regular Empire podcast is out every Friday. We would really appreciate it if you could subscribe to that and like it and rate it on iTunes. Every little bit helps. And we also have our spoiler special subscriptions channel, which is filled with incredible interviews with some of the biggest names in Hollywood going full spoiler on their biggest movies and, in some cases, TV shows. Details on how to subscribe to that are on my pinned tweet at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. Right, that's enough for me. Thank you so much for listening to this. Bye-bye. Oh,